Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from a prisoner at the Michigan Department of Corrections, Lake Lands facility. If you feel you're being victimized or extorted by this prisoner, please contact GTL customer service. At this call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. Hello. Hey, Ephraim, one sec. Are you there? I'm here. Can you hear us, Maria? Yes, okay. both of you. Good. All right, great. I think that what I was doing wrong before was I merged the calls before I accepted your call. It, I think it just, there was something about that, that that made it, like, not take the call. Because when I, I waited to merge them this time, it took it right away. So... Just, I guess, an FYI for the future. Um, I do. Right. How you doing, Ethan? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm hanging in there, uh, staying busy, even up to the last minute of, uh, you know, getting ready for the hearing. All right, bro. So, uh, just real quick, um, hey, everyone, uh, Dr. Ernesto, I'm here with uh, Maria Zavala Paredes. And Ephraim Paredes, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Brother Ephraim's case uh, that is uh, coming up right now in, in the Michigan courts. It's, it's quite, a, quite a story. Um, there's a long history of community involvement uh, with this case. Um, and, you know, so it, it seems like it's kind of uh, maybe coming to an end. But, you know, as, uh, as we all know, uh, the end is usually the most, uh, the most important part. And so we wanted to get uh, Brother Ephraim on here to talk about what's happening and to, um, you know, see what it is that all of the people who are listening to this podcast across the country can do to help. So I'm going to turn it over to uh, Ephraim Paredes right now. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Maria. Well, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk to, to the listeners. Uh, my name is Ephraim Paredes, Jr. I am uh, a prisoner currently housed in the Michigan Department of Corrections. I've been incarcerated now 31 and a half years. I'm one of the nation's juvenile lifers, which are people who were sentenced to life without parole when they were juveniles. In my case, I was arrested at the age of 15, and I am now 47. Uh, back in 1989 uh, is when my case happened. It, it, I was arrested one month before the case many other people may be familiar with, the, uh, the Central Park Five, who are now the Exonerated Five. Uh, they were arrested one month after me, and it was a, a, a great deal of media uh, coverage of this case, print, uh, print, radio, and television coverage. The case involves a homicide and robbery of a grocery store manager in St. Joseph, Michigan. I had alibi witness uh, witnesses for the crime, and I was not present or 
did not participate in the crime in any way. Despite that, uh, I was convicted uh, only three months after my arrest. I went to trial three months after my arrest, which is uh, unprecedented when it comes to homicide cases. I've met many people who have spent a year or two in the county jail waiting their, their trials. Mine was three months. During that time, there were a number of uh, print media uh, articles about this case, dozens of them, close to 90. So it was impossible to re uh, receive a fair trial under, under that. Also, uh, the racial uh, composition of, of my jury, I had 11 white jurors and uh, one African-American juror. The victim was white in my case, uh, a white man in his, in his late 20s. The judge, the prosecutor, and all the arresting officers in this case were also white. So I, we've been, you know, after the conviction, we've been on a, a, a long, a long journey of, of trying to overturn the conviction. And in 2000 and and in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court made a, a landmark ruling uh, banning mandatory life without parole sentences for juvenile offenders. They stated that um, because judges didn't have an option of how to sentence juvenile offenders during the time that I was uh, placed on trial, the only option they had was a mandatory life sentence for homicide convictions. So the based on adolescent development, emerging adolescent development science in the last decade or so, they've shown that, you know, what every parent knows and what is common sense to many people already, and that's that children are different. They're they're not miniature adults and they deserve special protections under the law. That their brains are still developing until the the age of 25, and that you know during adolescence, there's a great deal of, of change just going on um, physically inside their brains. So they 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 determined once the, the Supreme Court made the ruling, they said that judges must have an opportunity to either sentence to a term of years or to a life without parole sentence again. The term of years can only, or excuse me, a life sentence can only be given to a juvenile offender if a judge determines that they are irreparably corrupt, permanently incorrigible, incapable of change, and beyond rehabilitation for the rest of their lives, which is a bar so high that, uh, they said that this should become a rare and uncommon sentence. So those that go before a, a judge and the judge determines that that person does have a capacity for change and has, does have a maturity, then uh, that person should be able to receive a term of year sentence. In the state of Michigan, the, that sentence, the, the slide on that scale is from 25 to 40 years on the minimum side. So Right now, I've served uh, 31 and a half years, and with my good time, 
it would be closer to 38, 39 years right in there. So I've almost served the, you know, the, the full maximum on the term of year side. So we've been waiting uh, since that decision. Now we're going on almost nine years. And the reason is that Michigan prosecutors and the attorney general have been extremely uh, resistant to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Miller versus Alabama. And what they did was they created a number of hurdles to cause delays in the process so that many of us are still waiting. There were 367 juvenile lifers in Michigan. At the time of the Miller ruling, we had the second highest number of juvenile lifers in the country. We now have the largest number of juvenile lifers in the country because we've been the slowest to resentence people. Uh, so far, there's been about 200 people that have been resentenced. Um, of that number, 93% have received a term of year sentence. Only 15 people out of that number have received uh, life without parole again. On a national level, um, that number is, is about the same, about 95%. And of the people that have been released in Michigan, uh, close to 120, none of them have reoffended. We have a 0% recidivism rate, which in Michigan is, is a historic low in any demographic of uh, prisoners who have been released from, from incarceration. So I, you know, in, in my particular case, uh, we had 10 people that in the county that were waiting resentenced, and the prosecutor filed motions seeking life without parole in, in all 10 cases. So far, uh, seven, six people have been resentenced. Only one has received a life without parole sentence. The others have received term of year sentences. And there's still three people remaining to be resentenced, uh, including myself. The mitigation hearing, which is going to take place October 5th through the 7th, uh, for me, will consist of the judge uh, having to evaluate my case. He'll listen first to the, to the prosecutor and an investigator who has reviewed uh, my prison file and and prison phone calls even and, and mail and he's going to make a report about uh, the conduct and then after that uh, it'll be our turn my defense attorneys will present the case with expert witnesses and a number of other people who will testify as well uh, on my behalf we have corrections specialist a psychologist um, we're also going to have a film producer who's been working on a documentary film about my case, a podcast producer uh, based in New York, and I will also have family members and friends testifying as well. At the conclusion of the hearing, it'll be, you know, the judge will be tasked with making the decision, the simple decision whether or not we have presented uh, evidence that I have the capacity to change and that I'm not permanently incorrigible and irreparably corrupt. And if the judge uh, follows the law, but the U.S. Supreme Court has 
repeatedly said about this, I should receive a term of year sentence. And he would dismiss the prosecutor's motion seeking life without parole. After that, then he'll schedule a sentencing hearing, and then that's when I'll find out what the sentence actually is. So that's where we're at right now. So, Ethan, how much time then elapses between uh, the the hearing that's coming up and 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 the resentencing hearing? So that that there's really no no uh, set number. Uh, some judges wait a month. You have one minute remaining. Some judges wait a month. Some have waited two months. So somewhere in that range is uh, usually when they do the, the resentencing. Wow. I I know that, uh, you know, um, just for the people that are listening, um, Marie, and, Marie and I have been friends for many, many years, almost 25 30 years at this point. Um, and so I've been on the periphery of uh, Ephraim's case for a long time, and I, I feel the tension, not, not anywhere near like used to do, but like to think that this could be coming to an end for you um, is just uh, really overwhelming. I mean, how, how confident do you feel about it? We're going to get cut off here. Let me answer that on the other side of the call. Okay. I'll call right back. Okay. I'll, okay. Thank you for using GTL. So, you know, my, uh, my feelings about, about everything are this. If, if the judge follows the law and does what the Supreme Court has mandated in this case, clearly, I've met the threshold of, of being capable of change. You know, uh, studies show that personality never ceases to change. And other studies have even showed that in people over the age of 30, that personality may change even more, you know, may go, undergo more change. So my body of work for three decades, consistent body of work, accomplishment, service to others, makes it plain that I don't meet the standard for a life without parole sentence. So when it comes to the confidence in making and reaching, you know, establishing that threshold, we, we can easily do that. The thing will be was, is what the judge is, you know, is going to do, and we don't have any control over that. But the best you know that we can do is uh, present the case, present the research that we that we have, and um, make a compelling uh, demonstration that I don't fit that I don't fit that uh, criteria. Yeah. So the other component to all of this is not just the legality and the um, court, and and you know that he has this sentencing hearing. It also has to do with the fact that. Um, there's there's human human beings involved right there's there's a family that's been supporting him this whole time that never has stopped supporting him um you know and he 
it's been hard on all of the all of these individuals and the longer this court system keeps dragging this on it's not just uh Ephraim's family but it's also the victim's family who has to be kept dragging um dragging them through all of this and i think everybody really wants uh some resolution in this case um you know he he has been there even to past nine years after the, the the law states that he shouldn't be um and so it it's just there's a human component to all of this that um you know this is a human element that uh, gets that get gets disregarded a lot or, or not uh focused on and so it's time consuming it's costly um and individuals you know really um are suffering out here and you know his family his folks his dad is getting older um and would like to see him before he passes you know he would like to see him be home before he passes um but those are really uh everything is on hold i feel like we're living in in this hold pattern um can't really make a whole lot of future plans because we don't know if your friend's going to be home or not you know so those are some of the things that i think about so those are some of the things that um i've had to put on hold for a while when um when i when even and i married one of the ways to overcome this this long ordeal is to uh commit to each other and say that we were despite how long uh he would be in prison and despite how long it took for him to uh be free that we would we would still live a life we would still live a life that we could live um it just feels like over time these things inside the prison inside the facility um are being limited so much so that we aren't, aren't able to visit um especially through this covid-19 there are no visits there's absolutely no visits no in person visits you can only talk on the phone um and even mail has gone restricted right um you used to be able to send him postcards with the um our child's uh, um drawings on them and they no longer allow uh postcards with crayons um art on it they no longer allow um cards that have glitter on it they no longer allow cards it has to be flat it has to be a flat print um otherwise they can't you know he can't receive any letters they minimize the Uh, amount of uh pictures that can be sent in an email um and so you know just being restricted on phone calls our phone calls are 15 minutes uh and then it cuts off like you know like we've had in this cast, podcast today every 15 minutes you have to recall someone and that costs money um and so you know there isn't any video um comp- re- video visits that we have with the people in prison in Michigan there's video uh visits in jails but not in prisons so it feels like over the years all these restrictions have started happening that limit the access that we have to our loved ones inside and it just makes it harder on the family to be able to uh sustain all that throughout the years but even even through those things we've we've managed to still uh keep our family unit intact and you know power through it but it does feel very um punitive not just for the individual that's in prison and we can't ever compare what what we're going through to what people are that are incarcerated are going to through but um 
you know, it's almost as if we're being uh, penalized for trying to have a relationship with someone inside, to have a family with somebody out on the inside. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward. Uh, it, it's not too long now. But like Ephraim said, we don't know when the judge is going to come out with his decision. We could be waiting. You know, there is no, there is no law on the books. There's nobody pushing this judge to say, you know, um, 60 days, 30 days is too much to wait for a sent resentencing. I mean, for an actual sentence to be heard. And then after that, we have to battle the parole board. So then he has to get on the schedule for the parole board to say that whether he comes home or not, or when is he going to come home? Has he met all the requirements? So I don't know, Ephraim, if you want to talk about that aspect about, um, and I might be wrong, I don't know what would happen after the sentence, is com the sentence comes through. Um, what, would, what would be the process for you um, with parole board? So after... Uh, the resentencing would take place, then one of the things that they've done is they've expedited the parole process for juvenile lifers. So usually within uh, within a month, you automatically see the parole board right after that. And then they've been making rulings uh, within a month of, of that time. And People have been, uh, they've moved that process along pretty quickly. And there's been a couple of reasons that they've done that. One, because they realized that this process has gone on way too long. And two, the COVID situation in prison. You know, at the prison that I'm at, we had the largest outbreak of COVID-19 in the state of Michigan. We had over 800 positive cases out of uh, 1,400, and the other, the, the remaining people, all but 100 and about 20 people had antibodies when they tested. So virtually everyone but 10% of the population received it. I was fortunate to not have received it, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But, uh, that, yeah, that would be the process that, uh, that we would go through with the parole board. Ephraim, you know, I, I think that um, one of the things that has always really just kind of uh, stuck with me over the years is that uh, you were 15 years old when you when you went into an adult prison. I mean, Ephraim, and I know that I've asked you this question before in the past, but I, you know, I think it's something that, you know, people need to really think about just, you know, the cruelty, the injustice, right, of, of this, of this whole thing of putting children in with adults. I mean, how does a 15-year-old boy, a 15-year-old Mexican boy survive in prison uh, in Michigan, you know, where there are not a lot of other Mexicans? Yeah, you know, when, when I came to prison, uh, the number of of, uh, of Latinos was, was a lot, a lot smaller. Yeah, much smaller than it is today. And um, I was fortunate to have, you know, those were the our brown brothers were the first ones to uh, to gravitate towards me, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, when I came to prison, you know, showed me the the do's and the don'ts, the ins and outs of the system. 
and uh, you know, I met some some other some other people as well who were very instrumental in in wanting to to help me. One guy was uh, been a long time. He has been a long time friend for 31 years. Ever since I went to that first prison, and he also was a juvenile lifer, so he was able. To, he understood. He was African American. You know, he understood the the struggle that I would be going through. And you know, when I went to when I went to prisons, uh, I started off at the most violent prison in the state of Michigan, the Michigan Reformatory. Probably within the first, you know, I, I've sat back and I thought about it, and in the first six years of my incarceration, I saw multiple suicides attempted suicides. I saw dozens of, of people getting uh, assaulted, you know, stabbed, uh, beat up. There were two homicides at one prison in my housing unit. And then and then there was the, the knowledge that, that people were even getting uh, sexually assaulted, you know, uh, for black and brown uh, youth inside of an adult prison. You know, you... you People have to, you know, you learn to, to, to basically become a man real fast. You know, there's no time for games. There's no time for uh, figuring out, you know, what, what you're going to do. The one thing, your, one, your number one focus every single day is when you go to sleep at night. You don't go to, you don't go to sleep with holes in you, with your face cut up, without, you know, you don't want to go, you don't want to go to bed being raped. You want to be able to go to bed as the same man that you were, or the same child you were, you woke up that morning. So, you know, it, it takes a, a great deal of work, you know, it, uh, not only physically to defend yourself and be hypervigilant, but you also have to learn to, you know, communicate uh, with people and develop ties, uh, which I was able to do. I was fortunate to to be around some, some great guys that had already been in prison for some time. And, you know, we, through them, I met other people and, uh, you know, they, one of the, the biggest influences in my life early on was, uh, at that time we had a organization called La Causa and it was a, a Chicano organization there at the prison. And there was probably only like nine or 10 Latinos that were going, you know, and they invited me to come over and, they started teaching me about culture and identity, and uh, you know I started uh, going to different religious services and participating in other organizations, going to NAACP uh, meetings and just other groups. You know, uh, that were trying to do things for themselves, and and through that uh, interaction, you know, developing uh, more ties and, and bridging uh, differences between people that's what helped me, you know, that's what saved my life, you know, uh, our, you know, respecting it and, and appreciating who I was and, and the, the long and rich history of, of persevering under every imaginable form of torture, of, of, of oppression, you know, recognizing that many people had come before me that had survived the same experience and, I, you know, I came from that same rich and long history as well. And if they could do it, I know I could stand on their shoulders and do it as well. Ethan, when, when you... Uh, you have one minute remaining. When you're released, what are you going to do? I'll answer that right on the other side of the call.
This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. Hello. Can you hear me? So, yeah. Yeah. I, I had to mute my computer. So when when you um when you come home, you friend, what what's your what's your plan? What are you gonna do? So I want to answer that a couple a couple different ways because uh my you know I've got work plans, I've got uh, family plans, and then we have social justice plans. First and foremost is uh, to be there for for my wife and my parents. Uh, my family has stood by me staunchly. They've never wavered in 31 and a half years. Uh, they deserve my full support, appreciation, love, everything that I can give them. They have that coming. You know, Maria has, has been an amazing wife, partner, best friend, and uh, I want to do everything I can to make her proud and to be there for her in every imaginable way that I possibly can. We have three daughters. Uh, I love them dearly, and I want to be there for them, you know, however I can and be a part of their lives. We have a little one, school age, who's going to definitely uh, need a lot of attention and I need to help Maria with her, with schooling and just, you know, I, she's carried a burden for a long time doing everything on her own. And she needs me there to be able to help relieve her of that and to give her a chance to, to be able to breathe and finally know, like, you know, all these years that she put in of hard work, of dedication, of, of uh, commitment, that I have not, I have not, uh, none of it has gone unnoticed, and I appreciate every single bit of that. That's on the family side. On the work side, you know, I've got a, um, a number of different uh, opportunities uh, before me, and I don't know which which of them is gonna is gonna work out the best, but I'm gonna explore uh, different uh, employment options and do what's best for my family. Uh, on the on the social justice side, you know I, I've grown up in prison all my life. I've been here since 15. I've, I've almost all of my teenage years, all of my 20s, all of my 30s, and the majority of my 40s. Two-thirds of my life I've been in prison. And because of that, I can never forget the people that that have been left behind, you know, people that have become like family to me who have been, you know, supportive of me and defended me and, and taught me, uh, mentored me, you know, along the years. There's a lot of social justice work that needs to be done on the prison reform side. There are things that need to be done in the Chicano Latino community that I definitely want to support. Um, there's things that, you know, with race relations that I want to work on. And one of the most important things that I definitely want to spend time on is working to help at-risk youth, uh, helping develop youth development boards that I've seen happen in major cities around the country, and to just push, push the agenda about the need to end mass incarceration, try to decarcerate uh, the United States prisons, and you know, and and bring a bring a spotlight on it like it's never been brought before, to let people know that uh, mass or, you know prison, you know, yeah, mass incarceration has been a failed experiment. If if incarceration worked, uh, we would be the safest country in the world, 
because we've locked up more people, black and brown, than any country on earth. And we all know that the United States is not the safest country in the world. It's one of the most dangerous and most violent places on earth. So there's a lot that needs to be done that hasn't been done. I think there's been a lot of lip service paid to uh, reform, but there hasn't been the people behind it and the voice that needs to be, uh, the, the voice there to amplify it in a way that people can digest and move them to change. The movement that's going on out there right now, you know, it started with the, the murder of George Floyd. You know, there's things that we, you know, we can build alliances uh, with those people, you know, because not only are they fighting for uh, systemic change when it comes to, to police abuse against citizens, but also the criminal justice system. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done, um, and I want to lend my voice to that in any way that I possibly can. I want to interject here real quick. I think that at the heart of the matter, at the heart of this case, um, there has been a lot of organizing. Um, and, you know, when I when I got involved with the case, um, Efren, Efren had a lot of knowledge and he was very well versed and experienced and uh, a lot of law, a lot of uh, even, you know, building partnerships with other organizations within the prison system, but also outside of the prison system. And I recall when, when we got involved as, as, as uh, the Chicano Development Center back when we had that, uh, that's when we started um, uh, taking up uh, or helping in this case. We brought, I think, we brought some other skills that, that Efren quickly adapted to, and he very quickly had become a uh, prison advocate from within. Um, and he's already had that organizing spirit when we when we met him, and he already you know we all we did was just lift up some of the thing some of the work that he was doing, um, and and supported him, and and then we um, got students involved, Michigan State University students. Um, these uh, oh goodness, I'm thinking about um, uh, Dave Mitchell and and uh, Jordan and all those um, individuals that were from North Star. Sorry to think about the North Star helped so much tremendously, right? The Peace Center in East Lansing. Um, we started doing teach-ins at the university. Um, one of the, the one of the key factors I think that was missing in in not just Efren's case, but in all these cases, were that people had forgotten that there's a law in the state of Michigan that sends children to prison for the rest of their lives, whether they be black, brown, uh, black, you know, or or white. Obviously, there's it was used against. Um, young men of color mostly and some women but uh or young ladies but um it still could have effect affected uh freshman students at michigan state university high school students right or seniors that are uh, out and about and get stopped by the police and get charged and falsely accused of different things they could possibly end up in prison for the rest of their lives and people didn't know that and once we started educating the mat the community uh as a whole um, and then Efren on the inside would, would get other inmates to pass this along to their family members on the outside. It spread throughout Michigan. And I think that it took a massive organizing um, effort on nationally to be able to change the laws in the United States. And it did not happen just by, by happenstance, uh, you know, prosecutors and start saying, oh, we should rectify this law. Absolutely not. 
it was from the effort, it was a grassroots effort. Um, and how much more grassroots can you get than actually organizing within the prison system, right? And using that time that you have inside uh, to read and to learn about the law that's, that, that puts you in there and teaching others. He, we, you know, he spent a lot of hours uh, despite the fact that there's only 15 minute calls, calling into workshops, calling into uh, meetings and talking to individuals about what his situation is and was and could be for those that are listening to him. And they, people started realizing that this is a law that we have to overturn. It's so crazy that life is so weird. And, you know, those, the, the biggest supporter of this life uh, without parole law was um, Donald Trump. And he is our current president. And so if he was so cruel and, and unjust, even at that time to, to uh, pursue this law at that time, to put it on the books, um, he's doing the exact same thing now, you know, for other, other parts of our life. And look at the, look at where we're at. So I think that, you know, organizing um, played a key, key part in a key component in this. And I have no, um, I, I'm, I'm certain uh, that Ephraim were going to come home and, you know, be a rich um, asset to organizing in entities out here um, as he has been already on the inside. Did you okay. want to talk about your social justice uh, organizing, your online organizing? I don't know if that's something that you wanted to talk about or not. Well, I was also wondering too, Ephraim, what people could do right now to to help with this. If there's anything that they can do. So I, I answer that question first, and then I'll answer Maria's question. Uh, people right now, uh, what they can do to help, and I hope that you're able to uh, post this with your podcast, is go to uh, an online petition that we've created. It's a change.org petition, uh, which supports my release, and ask the judge. Uh, to give me a term of year sentence and not a life without parole sentence. And people can access that by going to bitly.com, B-I-T-L-Y.com, slash free, E-F-R-E-N. That's bitly.com, slash free, E-F-R-E-N. And we've, we've got over 1,100 signatures on there, and we want to have as many signatures as we possibly can going into next week. We're going to have someone, actually it's going to be my one of my little cousins, is going to read that letter in the court and talk about the support that we, that we have uh, generated so far. So that would be a great help for anyone. Anyone around the country can sign that. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll get that out. Okay. For the, so, for the social justice work... Uh, you know, I've been working with a number of people. You know, actually, I have a, a phone meeting today later on with uh, a representative for the Poor People's Campaign here in Michigan from the steering committee. And they want to work with me about, uh, you know, trying to figure out ways to uh, build a bridge with incarcerated people and share the aspect that they have that deals with um, incarceration, ending mass incarceration. So we're going to talk about that. Um, I've, you know, I've just, I've just been dealing with a lot of different people, uh, like Maria said, speaking at, uh, colleges around the country, you know, U University of Southern California, uh, University of Oregon, MSU, 
University of Michigan, and even Columbia University. You know, um, we've, we've talked to people in, in Ecuador, in Canada, um, about you know just working on uh, on social social justice work, and I've just been tirelessly you know doing this. And this, you know, I, th I think that one of the things that's important about all that is that in the midst of doing all that. Um, you know, I, I often spend little time focused on myself. You know, I've, I spend so much time working, you know, trying to help other people, and because I know that that's uh, that's meaningful. You know, and that gives me a sense of purpose. Um, and everything that I've done, everything from educating myself, from helping other people, working on these social justice issues, um, all of that. You know, I was doing that at a time when I was sentenced to die in prison. I was living a death by incarceration sentence, a hopeless sentence, a sentence that meant that the only way I was ever going to leave prison was in was in a casket. And I still did everything that I did, not because I had to, not because I was forced to, but I did it because it was the right thing to do. And I think that that's a testament to uh, who I am and, you know, the things that I'll continue to be doing because... The, the last 30 years of my life have been consistent with the first 15. I had never been in trouble. I was a high school honor student. This issue of juvenile life without parole is, is, is devastating on a number of fronts. It's a human rights violation. 70% of the people locked up are black and brown. So it's a, it's a racist policy. The policy has to end. And so far, you know, before Miller versus Alabama happened in 2012, only six states uh, were not sentencing children to die in prison. Today, that number is 29. We move the needle in the nation through organizing. You have one minute remaining. We move the needle from organizing in the nation from six states sentencing kids to die in prison to 29 states saying we're not doing it anymore. Wow. That's uh, that's amazing. I mean, that that is that that is a that's a testament. That's a legacy. That uh, 15 minutes went fast. Is it 15? <laughs> that was really fast. Um, you got? Would you guys you guys want to wrap up, or do you want to wrap up right now, or do you want to call back and wrap up? Which one? Just you. We can call. I can call back, and we can wrap up for final thoughts, or. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I, let's 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 do that. Let's call back and, and wrap up. I didn't wanna. I don't wanna. Okay. Impose too much, but yeah, let's let's. Thank do you that. for using GTL. We're back. I want I wanted to mention something, uh, Todd. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about organizing, and the impact that community organizing has had. You know, I had a I had a public hearing in 2008, which Maria was very instrumental in spearheading, and it, it became it was the largest attended public hearing in Michigan history, and it was also the longest, which was nine and a half hours. I, I you know, that's one example. Yeah, yeah, that's one example of community organizing, of showing the, the, the impact of people coming together. You know, organizing also led to me being on the cover 
of the 2005 Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch um, study that was released about juvenile life without parole in America. I was also featured in another study here in Michigan. We had a, another study that was released about it uh, called it was the title was Second Chances that was done by Deborah LaBelle and the ACLU of Michigan. And then my case also went on to become featured in the, the documentary film Natural Life that people can see on, you know, you can see it on Prime, Amazon Prime. People can look at it on um, Netflix and other uh, venues as well. So all of that came, everything that has led to this point came from community organizing, people on the ground doing the hard work necessary to make sure that visibility was never taken off of this case and, and ensuring that, if anything, they just kept amplifying the need to end juvenile life without parole sentences, uh, not only in the state of Michigan, but throughout the country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, was a, a, that was a packed room that day. It was in 2005, Leah? Is this what you said, Ethan? 2005, when we went for the one hearing? I mean, there had 2008. Been, 2008. I mean, there had to have been 100 people there. Oh, I there, mean, was, it was, there um, was a bus full from MSU. Closer to two. Closer to 200? Yeah. 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 It was there were people from all over the state there. Was, I remember uh, that. It was incredible. Standing room. So... It was, they were really afraid that they weren't going to be able to accommodate everybody in that room. And, and they certainly did, but uh, there was an un enough chairs. But we, we organized the bus full of students from MSU. Um, and when they saw that bus pull up, Joss just dropped. And people were like, yeah, what the heck? That's the part I remember was how shocked the people, <laughs> everybody that like worked in the prison or who was there to like uh, play the prosecutor role. I mean, they, were, they could not hide the shock in their face. I mean, it was just, yeah. But you're right, Ephraim. I mean, it's, it's that hard work. It's the, it's the, the grind, right? The social justice grind of, of putting in the work to mobilize people, to get them educated, on uh, on the issues right and so then i mean it's just clear I and mean, we see it over and over again that you know once people understand what's really going on right then they do want to get involved in it like they do want to to make a difference and, and they're willing to put you know time out of their lives into into these issues you know many times for years i know that the the person who writes your newsletter has been doing this for years and years and years now and the name escapes me right now, and I feel really bad about that. But I get this newsletter on a fairly regular, on a fairly regular basis. But she's also out of the Peace Education Center in um, in East Lansing. You guys know who I'm talking about? The Peace um, probably the Peace at Center newsletter. Is that what you're talking uh, about? Well, uh, Tom Rico's wife. Oh, Ruth. Ruth, yeah. Ruth, yeah. What's her last name? I yeah. don't remember her last name, but yes, Ruth. Ruth Borjo. Yes. yes, that's it. She's yep. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah they're Tom. great friends of mine. They're amazing friends. I talk to them almost every day. 
Yeah, I mean, it is clear that their devotion to you and to your faith is um, is meant, you know. And so the work that that they're doing, but I read I read her stuff fairly regularly. Like she's she's writing things and sending them out, particularly when the COVID thing was really um, hitting. You know, she was really doing a lot of uh, a lot of writing and a lot of advocating. You know, for um, for prisoners on the inside. So yeah, I mean, it's just I mean that's the thing is that um, you know, like you were talking about earlier about incarceration or abolition, like prison abolition. I mean, there are a lot of people in this country who know that uh, prisons are not about reform, that it is punitive, and that when you look at the racial makeup of, you know, individuals who are in prison across the country, um, that it's punitive towards uh, people of color, right? It's a way of controlling populations in a way of, of um, well, yeah, of controlling populations. So, yeah, this, this has been amazing. It's really good to hear your voice, Deeper. I know that we've had a chance to talk before in the past, but this is this has been a great conversation. I feel like I got you all to myself this time. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of like a whole room full of people, everybody having questions and stuff like that. Um, is there, is there any last things, any last uh, words of wisdom or hope that you want to uh, send out to the people who will be listening to this? I, I just want to thank everybody for, you know, all their support for uh i ask that they keep me in thoughts and prayers you know in these, these next two weeks here i'll be going to the to the county jail this week so i'll be sitting down there for about a week in advance of the hearing um and you know it, it's uh as, as much as I'm, I'm grateful that i'm going down there it's also uh it's a strange feeling at the same time because i remember the last time i was there over 30 years ago and that's what began my journey. And so, you know, that, it's hard to, to ignore that part, but I have, you know, I have to go back with the mind, you know, with the, with the thoughts that, uh, hopefully that this is going to be the end of the journey now. Now it's going to come full circle and finally this long process can, uh, can come to an end. I'm encouraged by, uh, everything I, I've, I've worked night and day for months in preparation for this hearing. I really worked all my life, but, you know, for, but uh, to prepare as a person, you know, to become a self, you know, self-actualized person. But the, the work for this hearing, you know, has been uh, unprecedented. You know, I've, I've, I've spent weeks, months in the law library uh, researching adolescent development issues, juvenile justice issues, uh, brain science, uh, the, the legal aspects of all this, you know, in and out, reading, you know, I've read over 200 peer-reviewed journal articles about the juvenile life without parole issue and all this other stuff. So, you know, I've been, uh, I've been really working, you know, I've been really working, and I feel that we've worked harder for this hearing than anybody else possibly has, um, not because they didn't want to, but because they didn't know all the things that, you know, could be done to try to uh, prepare for the, you know, for that type of hearing, but I'm, I'm encouraged. Uh, I can honestly say that we've done everything that we possibly can to prepare for this hearing, and uh, I'm ready. The other thing is, you you can't panic. 
right? And that's what happens in a lot of causes that I've noticed is they panic and they don't know exactly, you know, what to do and they freak out. And it's like, this is the moment where you uh, hone in, you buckle down, you like Ephraim has like, um, yeah, in many, many, many hours, not just in the law library, but making phone calls, talking to people, writing to people, making sure people are still supportive and still on board um, and making sure that you are as prepared or even more so than the people that you're going to be encountering, right? And so I think that that's super uh, important not to freak out at the last minute. And believe me, for me at least, these couple weeks have been inching by and I'm just very um, glad to to be so close. And I do also feel that uh, we are at the tail end of it um, despite what happens after the hearing. Um, You know, even if the judge takes you know, another 30 days. We're hoping that we're working around that to make sure that that doesn't happen. But you know, it's it's the end. It's it's uh, certainly the end and the new start for Ephraim um, in his new uh, chapter in his book. Whatever he ends up doing, I do yeah. feel that he is going to do. He's going to be a great benefit to the society and to social justice in general and prison reform. All right. Okay. Ethan, thanks, thanks for taking the time uh, to talk to us today. And then maybe uh, what we can do is touch bases again, um, you know, in about a month or so and see where things are at. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds great. You know, thanks for having me. You know, I'm glad I was able to to uh, spend time with you guys. And, yeah, I look forward to that. That's all we have for today. I want to thank all of you that are listening and urge you to act on behalf of a friend Paredes Jr. and all of those children who have grown to adulthood locked up in cages. Make sure and go online to sign the petition that is included in the description of this episode. And until next time, remember and never forget, free a friend, free all prisoners. Much love to you all. Hey homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the Raza. This is the reality dysfunction.